everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Rene Weiss about his book, The Real Traviata, The Song of Marie Duplessis. Rene, welcome to the show. Hello. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm a professor of English um, at University College London, where I specialize in Shakespeare studies. Um, I've been there for a very many number of years. Um, but I also write biographies and I write about opera from time to time. And so um, I came across uh, this particular project simply out of uh, an, a lifelong passion for opera and particularly for La Traviata. So that's as it were the background. But I'm a Shakespearean professional. And um, I've also written uh, on other non-Shakespearean studies as a freelance author. It's very interesting how you have this background in Shakespearean studies and and how you're talking about a period that is very distinct from, you know, 16th and 17th century England. Uh, did you find that that background uh, gave you any additional insights or brought you uh, a different perspective in terms of studying 19th century France and the culture of the time? Um, quite possibly. I mean, in as much as I suppose melodrama is such a Shakespearean um, quality. And also, I suppose, I mean, coming to it uh, with a lot of detail, I mean, my if you like, my specialism really is a period of about 25 years from the 1590s to the 16-teens. But I have been a lifelong reader of uh, Victorian and 19th century fiction. And as someone who's based in London, but I grew up um, in a small country next to France, so I speak French. And I've also, of course, I'm steeped in French culture as well as in British culture. And so I've had that, if you like, that edge um, you know, that allowed me to um, have more of a window uh, into the France of the 19th century. Um, but it's really, I mean, I came into this not because of the 19th century, but because of Traviata, uh, which is a, an opera based very intimately uh, on the life of a young woman who lived in Paris in the 19th century. It, it just amazes me, though, that given your background and given how scholars become very familiar with a certain set of sources and a uh, a certain set of resources uh, available to them to do it, and how that is very different for the 19th century. You're, you're dealing with, you know, in some respects, you know, uh, a better archival collections, but also a different context. And yet how it... I, I, I would have. I read this, and it, it struck me as, as as the work of somebody who had spent a lifetime going through all of these uh, archives, collecting all these resources. The the breadth of your research uh, for this is really impressive, and and and, and I, I got the impression that, that was really necessary to undertake the reconstruction of Duplessis' life that you needed. Well, I think that's undoubtedly true. I mean, to the extent that I love working in archives. And I mean, again, as a Shakespearean scholar, I'm very used to working in, I mean, particularly the Shakespearean biographer. I've worked extensively in archives with America, um, but also, of course, you know, particularly in Stratford upon Avon. So, um, to that extent, I think there's a neat, if you like, link between my, um, uh, if you like, more scholarly expertise and my, what I would consider as my more amateurish um, writing as a freelance author. 
Um, I mean, I certainly spent a great deal of time in Paris. I went to all the places in Normandy, because after all, the woman behind, the young woman who is behind the story of La Traviata, uh, was born in Normandy uh, in an area which today looks very much the same as it did in her time. There's a huge amount of material in the archives in Paris. Um, and indeed, the apartment in which she lived, the apartment which she made famous, which is effectively the setting of the opera as well, is still amazingly, is still there, though no longer, uh, obviously, as a lived-in uh, apartment. I mean, archival work is everything, and it, it, it is precisely archival research that allowed me uh, to, for example, to identify uh, or to establish I mean, that, that, that she indeed had a baby boy, and that the baby boy's father uh, was a very, very prominent member of the French aristocracy and members of the Napoleon family. Uh, that was only possible because, obviously, because I speak French, because I am, um, I suppose, reasonably experienced in archives, um, and because I suppose I was prepared to run with uh, some anecdotal traditions that were rife in the period. And very often, as I know, again, as I know from my Shakespeare research, anecdotes, particularly anecdotes which originate in the period, have a way of coming, of turning out to be true or having a grain of truth in them. So I don't, um, I mean, I feel the archival work was, in some ways, um, everything. Amazingly, in Paris today, if you go to Parisian, famous Parisian cemeteries, like such as the cemetery of Montmartre, um, they have their own records, which go back to the period immediately after the French Revolution. So you find yourself, as it were, I mean, almost literally touching the face of history in situ, I mean, on, on the spot. Marie du Plessis's grave in the Cimetière de Montmartre in Montmartre is the, probably, allegedly, the most visited grave in Paris. Um, and to think that you know, literally about 100 yards from her grave is the cemetery office with its own archive. Um, so in that sense, it's the history which is both uh, 150 years ago and yet at the same time very, very present. So you feel as if you were, if not exactly, traveling in time. And you're certainly very close to uh, stories that may seem a long time ago, but actually, you know, coincide with what? My great-grandmother's life mm. in time. I was wondering if we could perhaps take us back then just a little bit further uh, from Paris to uh, what you just talked about with Normandy and talk a bit about uh, Marie Duplessis and her uh, childhood. Because as you described, she's when she's born, she's not Marie Duplessis. She's somebody very different. Yeah, she's called Alphonsine um, Plessis. In fact, I mean, she, the name of uh, Marie Duplessis is her mother's name. And she assumed her mother's name, which is actually very, very touching, very moving, um, because she lost her mother when she was very, very young. Basically, she's born in abject poverty in Normandy, um, at the time, a deeply agrarian society in the 1820s. Uh, Post-revolution, France is pretty poor. There's the revolution, followed by Napoleon, followed by Waterloo, followed by the defeat, and so on. So... Uh, she grows up um, in, the, in, in, in a family of, and her mother is a, is a, a, a beautiful, uh, intelligent young woman who marries a peddler who's an extremely violent drunk, 
who one evening tries to kill her. And uh, by a miracle almost, simply a miracle here, meaning a, a postman intervening and saving her, she has to flee. So Marie Duplassie becomes an effective orphan uh, in the hills of uh, a place called the Orne, that's spelled O-R-N-E, which is basically southern Normandy. Um, and she becomes a kind of a, a, a feral, a feral child almost for a couple of years, having to fend for herself. Her father is a drunk, he's a criminal. Um, and what happens is that uh, she's looked after by come by family locally a little bit, uh, although she has to go, she does bang um, to eat. Um, and But as she grows up, her mother by then has gone, she has fled um, and ends up uh, rather bizarrely uh, on Lake Geneva with an aristocratic English family. And in fact, her mother is actually buried in the same cemetery as Charlie Chaplin's brother, in just off Lake Geneva, in a place called Montreux, near Montreux, the same place as the film festival. Um, in the meantime, her two daughters, one of whom is very pretty, one of whom is not particularly pretty, but the pretty one is Alphonsine Plessis. As she becomes 10, 11, 12 years old, her father, this monstrous character, realizes that he can make money out of her. So he effectively sells her to an old bachelor. Um, but by then, because she has this feral childhood, human sexuality, normal sexuality, it's already an alien construct to her. She knows what people do in the countryside, and she tells us this later on. She just saw what people did, um, because she was everywhere, always surrounded by shepherds, by, by older men, and she becomes effective an abused child. Um, the She's sold to this sort of old bachelor, he abuses her, people start talking in the village, uh, and one day she, she flees, and she flees uh, the bachelor's home because she has just reached puberty, she doesn't know what it means. Uh, she is terror-stricken, local people pick her up, look after her, and so this life of abuse starts. Bizarrely, her father then recovers her, he gets custody of her. There's no real sense of anything that we might call a civilized society or a structured society. She doesn't really go to school. There is a kind of elementary school that she attends. She only has one thing going for her, and that is her health and her extreme uh, teenage beauty. Um, so her father then horribly, and we know this because she tells us, her father then uh, spends decides to take her to Paris um, to effectively, I, I suppose, just pass her on, get her off his hands. Uh, but before doing so, he spends uh, two or three weeks with her in a hovel, and what happened in that hovel, in that hut, um, again caused, you know, scandal locally. She is repeatedly, I suppose, I mean, would have to say she's repeatedly raped by her own father. Um, and then she ends up in Paris. She's in a very, very young teenager and she becomes in Paris, you know, but I mean, before she gets to Paris, um, what is clear to everyone are two things about her. She's very pretty um, and she's extremely intelligent. And it's these two um, qualities, her intelligence, 
uh, ability to pick up learning everything that would ultimately give her a passport, uh, literally, to the highest echelons of Parisian society. But her childhood is a nightmare beyond doubt. Um, it's almost unimaginable. And in fact, I mean, when I wrote the book, I put some more of uh, what was absolutely documentary evidence into it. And my publishers felt that some of the evidence, and if you know the book, um, some of it is pretty terrible. This is 19th century uh, abusive culture on a scale that, I mean, we think things are bad sometimes now. Um, but if you read uh, what the medical take the medical reports on children being abused in the period, obviously particularly young girls, um, it is too terrible to read. And in fact, my publisher said some of this stuff is so dreadful, we don't think it should be in the book. So um, her childhood is one of, uh, of, of, of sheer hell. And yet, um, one particular quality of her nature is that she seems to be the most forgiving person who's ever lived. A few years after uh, she escaped her father's clutches, she goes for a walk. She's back in Normandy. She's just had a baby in Paris. She's recovering from the birth. She's going for a long walk with someone from her own village who knew her as a child. This particular character, who a man called Romain Vienne, who becomes her chronicler effectively later on, he asks about her father. He expected her to, um, at the very least, to disown her father completely. But she doesn't. Instead, she bursts into tears because her father died. Um, and he can't begin to understand that. My view is what it is worth. That's the reason why I think by then, when she was in her late teens, why she felt that she could forgive her father is because, because frankly, by then she thought all men were equally guilty and equally awful, because although her father was an unsophisticated monster, if you like, he was known uh, locally in Normandy as the sorcerer. I mean, you know, a, a man who was so wicked, he must be practicing witchcraft. Um, but she forgave him, and I think the reason is because she, she learned the terrible truth, that in Paris, although the men who paid for her because she became, after all, the most famous courtesan in the Paris of the 1840s, that they were ultimately no better than her father, that it was the same um, drive, uh, the same sexual predatory drive that um, kept this young woman as a victim, I mean, literally, all her life from the moment she was 10. That resiliency is something that, I mean, for me, really stood out when I was reading your book, the sense that, in, you know, even after all that she goes through, something that you would imagine would be crippling in so many ways, how she, at, at some point, in, in, in some ways that, that, that unfortunately we can't really access, she finds it within herself to, to instead do something with it, to basically turn what it, the things that are, are, are making her such a target of exploitation and use them to her advantage to rise up to the pinnacle of Parisian society. I think, I mean, that is absolutely, exactly, I mean, the way you put it, uh, is exactly right. I mean, she, her resilience, I mean, resilience must be the operative word here. She manages to turn her looks and her intelligence 
obviously to her advantage. I mean, she is the one who got away. Most of the young women of the period just sank, you know, under that sort of burden um, of violent uh, exploitation and abuse. And she uh, survived. And she survived simply, I think, because she was, luckily, she was very strong. She was initially healthy. um, And she was determined to survive. And so when she ends up in Paris... Um, it is really her extraordinary charisma and charm, which everyone who met her, I mean, literally everyone who testified, and this includes some of the most prominent people in the Parisian literati society, people not, ju- not just like Dumas, not just like Franz Liszt, but very many others who met her, said, you know, the, per- the person, the, woman, the young woman we're given, in the novel and in indeed in La Traviata is not really idealized. This is what she was like. And so it was an extraordinary generosity of spirit. And somehow I think, you know, um, the... I mean, everyone who knows La Traviata, I mean, you know the famous Pretty Woman film or um, um, a, a young woman goes to, to the opera, a young prostitute, and sees a film, sees, sees the production of Traviata and bursts into tears And because Violetta seems too good to be true, Violetta being Marie Duplessis. But in fact, I mean, everyone who had known her and then saw the opera and read the novel subsequently felt that, in fact, I mean, nothing was made up, that this is exactly what she was like, that she was kind and generous, forgiving, incredibly generous, in fact, in every sense. I mean, there were stories of her generosity to poor people, to people who were less, even less fortunate than her, that, 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 that will just make you want to burst into tears and think, is this really possible? That someone who had never given, been given a moral framework, a spiritual framework um, to act, but yet she seemed to be instinctively uh, someone whom, I mean, I think for better or for worse, who has been called a saintly courtesan. On the one hand, she was the top of the tree of the sex industry. That's what she did for a living. She was a courtesan. The most brilliant men in Paris wanted to be seen with her, paid her for sex. At the same time, she had all the, if you like, the moral fiber of someone who was absolutely upright, decent, um, and uh, never hurt anyone. Um, she lost her baby, uh, who died. I, I fortunately, uh, by good luck, by I suppose by research and also serendipity, I found. Uh, the name of her baby's son um, and his father, who, so here she is, this girl from nowhere, hobnobbing with Napoleons, who are the kind of the aristocracy ultimately after um, the return of the monarchy. And she's the queen bee. I mean, she is the queen bee of Paris in the 1840s, when Paris, in a window of 10 years, for 10 years between 1830 and the cataclysm of 1848-49, Paris is the most brilliant place in the universe, Uh, certainly in France, certainly in Europe, opera, music, theatre, everything converges on Paris. There are about eight to nine, ten years of peace and prosperity, and she is at the heart of that world in one of the most famous boulevards in Paris. And the people who meet her are all stunned 
by her intelligent conversation. She has read Balzac. She has read, you know, uh, Byron. She knows about about art. Her apartment is furnished exquisitely. It's furnished to the tune of what we would now call millions of euros. It's, I mean, obviously she didn't pay for that. Her rich protector paid for that. He was one of the richest men in the whole of France. Even so, um, her resilience, her brilliance of character, her kindness, and of course her beauty. Uh, what makes this woman stand out? She's not, this is not an Emma Hamilton, you know, Nelson's lover, Emma Hamilton, uh, who is also from a similar background. This is somebody who has class oozing out of her um, while not ever having been taught manners or anything. It was instinctively uh, an exceptional young woman. We've, you've described some of the uh, personality traits and some of her the abilities that made her such an appealing person, and yet you it's it's it, there's more to it than that because it, it's not enough for her to simply show up in Paris and it, it's not as though she's instantly swept up into court circles. How does she ultimately rise up while she's in Paris? What what you know who who does she meet? And, and, and how does she use those initial relationships to go further? Well, she's a, she starts life as a, laund- as, as a laundry woman in, in Paris, which is what many young women did at the time. And to be a laundry woman basically meant you were a fair game. Um, and so many, many of these young women who basically didn't earn very much at all in order to supplement their income, of course, you know, effectively found themselves out. Uh, to as mistresses to the richer men, the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy of the period. And so they would hang out uh, around the theatres of Paris and the opera houses. And there were at least two famous opera houses and many, many theatres in the area where Marie Duplassie, or as as she was known at the time, Alphonsine Plassie, worked. Initially, she she became the mistress of a local restaurant owner who put her up in a small apartment and suddenly from living effectively uh, in what one would call for better or for worse, a flea pit, she suddenly had an apartment to herself. At some point, um, she uh, became the mistress. She was spotted. We don't quite know how or when by one of the most powerful men in the whole of Paris. Uh, he was called the Duc de Morny. Uh, the Duc de Morny is a Napoleon. Um, by birth, although he's although he's, he's a bastard Napoleon, as it were, he's not um, uh, directly directly descended from Bonaparte, but he is a member of the Napoleon family. He's extremely brilliant. Um, he loves women. I mean, so on the one hand, and that's putting it euphemistically, but he's not a sexual predator, but he's someone who had grown up in a household full of women, and people said he had the most refined manners, the most refined conversation you could find in Paris. And he takes her under his wings, he becomes her lover, and for a year and a half, he has her coached and educated, uh, as if he were... If you like, as if he were Pygmalion and she were his creation and she were his challenge and she does indeed become his masterpiece. Um, When he meets her, she is a a capped woman, capped by a petty bourgeois. When he and she finally part, we don't quite know exactly when, but about sort of 18 months later or so, 18 months or so after the affair started, she is 
rich, rich and capped. She is very glamorous. Uh, she's extremely cultured. Her conversation is now cultivated. She can play the piano up to a point. So he effectively takes, as I put it, I mean, I suppose in my book, he takes this shepherdess and turns her into a princess. And a princess is, of course, you know, what she uh, then becomes because of him. She moves in the upper class Parisian circles. Everybody gets to meet her. Uh, people are instantly, um, again, the number of testimonies to the legion are instantly bewitched by her conversation, by her presence, by her charm. So it's this very powerful lover who creates them. And from being Alphonse in Plessis, she now becomes Marie du Plessis. It sounds aristocratic because the French du, meaning, you know, of or German von. But in fact, it is her mother's name. And it is her way, I'm convinced, of making her mother live again. By then she knows that her poor mother uh, died um, without ever seeing her daughters again. So I think as much as anything, the turning the name from changing her name from Alphonsine Plessis to Marie du Plessis is also and perhaps primarily a way of uh, keeping the memory of her mother uh, alive. I mean, several years later, uh, at some point, uh, not long before her death, an English aristocrat, a brilliant English aristocrat who looked after her mother um, and had her mother painted gives Marie Duplessis a picture, a picture of her mother, and it broke her heart to see her young mother, uh, when she herself by then was uh, so very, very sick, dying of consumption. But I mean, her personality was everything, and that's what, and, if, and her reading, she read voraciously. And so for someone from her background to read Balzac, to read uh, English classics, to know Byron's Child Harold, to know who Byron is, to know who Shakespeare is, is quite extraordinary. I think one tends to forget that she was incredibly young when she died. So she packed in an awful lot into about, what, six or seven years of glamour in Paris. She became very friendly with a well-known Parisian actress. And this Parisian actress wrote a memoir, and in it she talks about meeting Marie Duplessis and how Marie Duplessis was very conscious of the fact that, you know, whichever way you turn it, she was a prostitute, ultimately. And she confessed that, you know, she, the one thing she could never bear to be again was to be poor. And I, I, I love Gone with the Wind. And I remember when Scarlett O'Hara swears and vows she will never be poor again, will never be hungry again. And it's that kind of, if, 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 if you like, that sort of um, uh, grim experience of hunger and destitution and poverty that I think made it determined more than ever and never, ever uh, to be there again. And if it took being a prostitute or being, let's say, a courtesan, that's what she would do. And that's what she did very successfully. You describe her uh, involvement on the Parisian social scene, and it, it, it's almost like a who's who of the uh, of some of the most famous personalities in uh, in, in, in French culture and, 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 and French society at that time. 
I was wondering if you could perhaps describe uh, some of those key relationships and and the and how how they impacted her and and how she uh, inspired or influenced them. Well, I think the I mean the two most important relationships in that sense. I mean, quite apart from the. Um, many aristocrats whom she knew, and by three or four of whom, who were among the foremost aristocrats in the whole of Paris, who were physically involved with her. But apart from that, obviously, the most important relationship for posterity was the relationship with Duma. But in some ways, perhaps more important and more telling is the relationship with, with Liszt. Liszt was the most famous pianist of the 19th century. I mean, Chopin may be the most famous piano composer, but Liszt was incomparably the pianist. He was a magician. He was a genius. People adored him. He was fantastically good-looking. And she had heard Liszt play, and Liszt knew about her, of course, from his friends. And one evening, in a particular theatre in Paris, which is now unfortunately no longer there, in the foyer, um, she was introduced to Liszt. And someone was present who saw the two of them together and wrote in his diary afterwards, immediately it was clear how this would end. You know, these two were made for each other. Liszt was legendary. He was a womanizer, in quotation marks, but he was also, uh, he had, you know, God-given genius on the piano, on the keyboard, and she loved piano music. She loved music. She loved piano music. Um, Liszt and she went home that night to her lavish apartment on the Boulevard La Madeleine, which was right at the heart of Paris's boulevard culture, near the Place La Madeleine, um, and a very different boulevard from what it is today. I mean, really glamorous. And, of course, you know, the affair started uh, that night, and Liszt adored her, and Liszt's tribute to her um, later in life is heartbreaking. He said, you know, he wrote that she was, as she put it, the most perfect incarnation of womanhood he ever, he ever met. He thought she was the most innocent, the most, the loveliest girl he'd ever, he'd ever known. Um, and to say that about a young prostitute, I think one has to, this is the 19th century, it's not the 21st century, where... Uh, I suppose one's attitude to sex working and so on is very different. On the one hand, the 19th century had prostitution coming out of its ears. On the other hand, it was all very harsh and there was a strong moral censor at work. And yet everyone thought this young woman, whatever she did for a living, uh, was adorable. So Liszt's relationship with her um, and the account of how it started is is quite astonishing. I mean, she comes in like a princess, um, and he's instantly, instantly sort of taken with her. Um, Duma uh, is the one, of course, who ultimately is the reason why the, this is Duma Fist, that's Duma the son, the younger Duma, uh, who meets her um, at the theatre, at the party, and falls in love with her. But although the Duma name is very famous now, Duma was ultimately a fairly minor player. I mean, his father, his father, who's the author of The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers and so on, his father was very famous. The younger Duma was not, and although he was not poor, he didn't have the kind of money that allowed him to keep Marie Duplessis, and he was very uh, rueful about that. But he, of course, you know, he did... Meet her. He did become her lover, um, but not exclusively so, which is what he apparently wanted. But he wrote, uh, and he and, and his response to her 
um, is extremely telling. And uh, extremely telling in as much as he had the literary imagination to give some kind of, as it were, imaginative life to what he saw. On the one hand, she was a young woman like every other young woman. On the other hand, he realized that she was in some ways more, that there was something about her aura that demanded to be shared and that could only be shared ultimately in fiction. And also, I think the fiction that he wrote, the novel, it's a short novel that he wrote, La Dame aux Camélias, The Lady of the Camellias, is ultimately a way of hanging on, of hanging on to her. Uh, he wrote her a fairly bitter note, you know, because she wouldn't stay loyal to him or faithful, because, of course, she actually, all the time she lived in Paris, after parting from the person who made her Marie Duplessis in the first place, she was, at that stage, for most of her life, the, technically, or if you like, almost legally owned by one of the five richest men in Paris, who was a very old a very old cone called Stuckelberg. Um, and Stuckelberg had been. Uh, his nickname in Paris was the Ravisher of Virgins um, because he was basically an old, lecherous, predatory man who had come to fame during the French Revolution and in the aftermath, the Vienna Congress, all that. So he was a politician who was incredibly wealthy. And he kept her, but he kept her as a sort of daughter. So he paid he paid for uh, her apartment. He paid for the immensely expensive internal decorations of the apartment. He paid for her trips to the opera. And occasionally, I suppose, she let him have sex. It's as simple as that. In the meantime, there was this whole string, as you say, of people who come and go, who are like a roll call of the famous artists, writers of Paris, most of whom she knew, as it were, to talk to some of them were her lovers. And as I said, I mean, I, in my view, obviously the two most important in a galaxy of lovers uh, were ultimately Duma, because he gave us La Dame Camellia, which then became a play. And the play, uh, which is based also called La Dame Camellia, then is seen by chance some extent, at least so we think, by chance, by Verdi, by Giuseppe Verdi, in the Paris theatre. And he says, allegedly, he said, when he sat at that play, at that performance of Dumas's play, La Dame Camellia, he heard uh, the first strings of La Traviata, those, that, those famous, that famous music of Traviata from the preludes that everyone all over the world knows, I think. This kind of plunge, that plunge melody came to mind when he saw the Duma play. So the Duma is very important. Um, the fact that Liszt was so um, besotted would not be the right word. I mean, it's, he was absolutely bewitched by her and loved her to the end of his life. And Liszt you know, lists is, in my view, in view of many people, uh, an incomparable artist, both as a composer and particularly a pianist. And for the, the idea of Liszt playing on her piano, I mean, in her apartment, she had a piano which she called a playel piano, a beautiful, famous maker of pianos. And Liszt played on that piano. And then she tried to play on it uh, for him. And that you can imagine that would have been quite comical. 
Um, but anyway, I mean, so I think she um, drew men to her like a magnet, and if you could afford her, um, and she, but no one ever felt. And this is the real magic and the real mystery of like, the lady, the camellia. So no one ever felt that she was remotely tarnished by what she did. It's fascinating to think about how rapid her rise was in Parisian society. And yet, for, for all of its rise, she, she dies at, at, at such a tragically young age. How, how is it that you know, she, you know, how, how, how did her, impact, how did her uh, early death impact all these people around her? And to what degree did it influence a lot of these artistic productions like Dumas' uh, novel and, and, and Verdi's opera? Well, I think the because she died so incredibly young, most of the people who had known her, her friends, of course, survived her by very, very many years. She was twenty; she was barely twenty-three when she died, and he just he had just recently, month before, turned twenty-three. So, uh, yes, I mean her rise was meteoric uh, and almost instant. Um, and she died of consumption, which was, of course, you know, very much a, a disease, of the, a, a horrible illness of the period. Um, and the people, I suppose, around her, I mean, the funeral, she was buried twice. First of all, when, I mean, people around her who, to follow through on that were, I suppose, both stunned by her rapid demise and then by the mythification of her, first of all, by Duma. And of course, in Paris, it was Duma. The Duma name was so big that, you know, whether it was Duma Pair or Duma Fis uh, who wrote about her, it was going to be a Duma, a Duma, if you like, imprimatur on that novel. And so the whole of Paris read this novel. And the novel is barely, barely a novel. It's basically, as Duma the Younger himself said, it's basically a memoir, an autobiographical memoir. So people uh, were amazed to some extent, first of all, by the funeral. The funeral was witnessed by a lot of people. Um, she was buried in the Jewish part of the cemetery, first of all, because she was a sinner. Um, and then her husband, she had married, not long before she died, she had married another very wealthy young aristocrat, and so she was married, effectively, she, was, she wanted to be married with the arms of that family. Uh, so she would be married legally, technically, as a countess, and she was. Uh, and her husband, who was a kind, decent, and indeed rather glamorous young man, um, then insisted that she be moved from this non-consecrated part of the cemetery to... Uh, uh, if you like, a consecrated part of the cemetery where she is indeed today. Um, and it became instantly a place of pilgrimage because of the novel, of course, and also because she was, if I may uh, use the comparison that was made in the press when my book appeared, she was like Diana, Princess of Wales. That's our Diana, Princess of Wales. People knew, for example, when Marie Duplessis, every afternoon at three o'clock, she would go to the Bois de Boulogne in Paris. And so her chariot would be wheeled out. 
and people would gather, sightseers, tourists, and Parisians would gather to see her come out of her apartment like royalty to see what she was wearing. When she went to the opera, uh, people would gather outside the apartment to see what she would look like, what she was dressed as. So if you like this prostitute princess um, was a myth uh, to some extent a myth in her own life. And then, of course, you know, the two, the Duma, the Duma novel um, had a huge impact in Paris. The play, uh, which appeared about um, something like, you know, a few years later, in 1851 or so, um, had an even larger impact because some very famous people played in it. And then, of course, you know, two years after the play comes La Traviata, and with La Traviata, the story, which is a, in some ways a desperately sad, tawdry story, becomes elevated uh, to the world of myth and magic, and the whole world knows about La Traviata. But actually, you know the word La Traviata, it sounds so wonderful, melodramatic, operatic, but it actually means the woman, it literally means she who is or who has been led astray. That's all it means, la traviata. But, it, you know, we all imagine it as meaning something glamorous. And in fact, it means both. Um, now the word is associated exclusively with the opera. And we think of the wonderful music as la traviata. But in fact, it means a little more than a prostitute. Um, but Verdi, of course, turns into something rather grander. And Duma. But I mean, the astonishing thing is that people who had known Marie Duplessis um, lived to see uh, her legacy become one of the most famous legends of Parisian history. And there's some, if you like, some small crumb of comfort uh, in that for a life that was so dreadful, that had such terrible beginnings, and that never really, I think, in the round, yes, she had a life of luxury at a time when very few people in Paris lived lives of luxury, but it was also a life of, of subordination, a life of tackiness, a life of uh, purchased sexuality. Um, and everything that people say about her um, make one, I think, acutely aware of the fact that she would have known all along. And that's what she confided in her active friend who wrote about her subsequently, that she was deeply, profoundly ashamed of the life she lived. Had she lived longer, um, it is quite possible that she would at some point have been able to relinquish that life. After all, there were other French prostitutes from the period who managed to uh, live to a ripe old age and become deeply respectable. Um, but I'm afraid in the case of Marie Duplessis, uh, that wasn't to, to be. It's very strange going to the cemetery in Montmartre. You could go there tomorrow morning and find that people leave flowers that people write notes and leave notes for her um, as if somehow, um, and that's been happening ever since uh, she died. Um, her contemporaries like Duma and others used to go to, would go to the grave occasionally in Montmartre and would wonder how come you know, people still come to, to see her. People never knew her. People only knew about her through Duma. But if you know the novel and if you know the story, 
of uh, this life that ultimately became a life of triumph, however, however, ultimately tawdry. Um, then I think we can't help admiring her. Verdi's opera, when Verdi's opera opened in London, uh, about five years after it was written, people accused it of being pornographic, of being disgraceful, of being revolting. The reviews in the Times newspaper of La Traviata will tell you all you need to know about quite how bold a uh, work it is, but how quite, how daring Dumas' novel is. Because, as I said, I mean, on the one hand, it's a world of prostitution, and everyone knows about it. On the other hand, it's a world that ultimately dare not speak its name too openly in public. So the reason why La Dame Camellia uh, was licensed, for example, for the theatre, um, is because the person in charge, the minister of the interior, if you like, at the time, was none other than the Duc de Morny. And it's Morny who had been Marie Duplessis's lover, who was the father of a child, who waved it through for performance. Otherwise, the play wouldn't have happened. So her old lovers, all of them, as far as I know, as far as my researchers have uh, shown, have stayed loyal to her almost to the end. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, at the moment, well, I'm sort of very much back in my in my Shakespeare research at the moment. So, um, if you if you must know, I'm, um, I'm writing on the Taming of the Shrew and the play called Love Lives One, which is a play by Shakespeare that is allegedly lost but that I believe, and I'm not the only person I hasten to say, is probably a play that we know is the Taming of the Shrew. Um, other projects, I'm compiling a data archive uh, on another biography that I wrote a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, uh, which is a famous legal case in the UK, a miscarriage of justice. Um, and it's a case in which I was very much involved 30 years ago. And um, so um, that's what I'm doing at the moment. Um, so I'm keeping, if you like, my academic career and my writing career on the twin track. You sound like an incredibly busy person. I'm glad you were able to take some time out of your schedule to speak with us today. It's been very good talking to you, Mark, and thank you so much for your interest and for clearly knowing the material so very well. That's very good of you. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much indeed.